Done? Well, we're going to dive in this week to the first of the Beatitudes. Thinking about the Beatitudes, uh, it's important that you not look at the Beatitudes like you might look at spiritual gifts, for instance. You know, spiritual gifts, we know that uh, one person may have a particular spiritual gift and someone else may have another one. There may be people that have, obviously, shared spiritual gifts or they overlap. That's not true with the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are all intended for all Christians. Okay? So all of us, each one of us, should have these attitudes, these Beatitudes, in our lives or be growing in them as we move forward. They offer a vivid description, in fact, of what the Christian life is meant to be. So when you read, when you read the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is telling you what His followers should look like, what they should be like. And the Beatitudes are a condensed version of that. So all Christians are meant to manifest all of these characteristics. It's not right to think of them being, okay, Sam's going to be poor in spirit, and Charles is going to be uh, one of those who mourns, and you know I'll be one of the meek, and you know Bob's going to hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's not the way to think of it. That's not helpful. You know, they're, they're designed for all of us, and we should all be growing up into all of them. Because why? Why is this, why is this so? They're describing everything that Christ is. Like, That's right. I mean, I read, it's... I read that as, again, with the focus of Matthew really being on um, Christ coming in, Building old law and bringing in the and establishing new kingdom, um, and then this happening shortly after John the Baptist is saying, "Behold, Lamb of God." Um, I, I tend to look at these as Jesus saying, "All right, here's how I'm going to do that. Um, here's my characteristics." going to give you the Holy Spirit later on this is going to empower you to carry out and put into practice all these things that I am and then there's going to be a blessing to follow. That's right. I mean you think about it, God's plan for us as Christ followers is that we what? Be conformed to the image of Christ. That we be as Christ is. So you're right spot on. Jesus is saying you want to follow me? This is what you look like when you follow me. Blessed, blessed are the poor in spirit, you know. Blessed are the those who are meek. Blessed are those who who hunger and thirst after righteousness. He's describing, yes, he's describing himself. He's giving us uh, a, a profile, and and it's to apply to all of us. You know, we have a tendency to think of each other. We know that we're all distinct and different. You know, we all have different personalities. We have different strengths and weaknesses that comprise who we are. And we tend to think that way. We tend to look at things that way. But it, it's a mistake to do that in this regard when it comes to the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount. Because these things are possible in our lives by a work of what? Grace. You, you mentioned it, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit fuels and provides these things in us and so you think of them as seeds growing up and producing fruit in us 
and not something that is equipping us for ministry like the spiritual gifts are. Yes, ma'am. When he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, what is, what is the important thing? We're, we're going to unpack that in just a minute. Just bear with me. All right? I want to kind of set the tone for the Beatitudes, and then we're going to jump into what, what does it mean to be poor in spirit. So in reality, some people display certain ones more than others. Somebody may display meekness more than someone else, but it's, it's a, the difference is between maturity in that area, ripening, you know, development, growth in that area. It's not that one person's going to be meek and another person's not. Okay. Moving on. So, <clears throat> what we're saying here is that these descriptions do not point to natural tendencies in us, but that they are a work of the Holy Spirit in all believers. The attitudes and actions are caused and fueled by God's grace working in believers. These descriptions or beatitudes illustrate powerfully the difference also between Christians and non-Christians. Okay? This, this just logically makes sense, right? You've got a person here that's, that's got the Holy Spirit in them, and he's producing things like we see in the Beatitudes. Meekness, righteousness, poor poverty in spirit, poorness in spirit. These things are being produced in this person. And over here you've got someone who is an unbeliever, does not have the Spirit of God in them. If the Beatitudes are a work of the Spirit, then a person who's not a believer can't have them, right? They may have natural tendencies in those areas, but they're not a work of God's grace in them. That makes sense? All right. Right. In fact, thinking about that countercultural thing, you know, you've got the the stream that is this culture, and it's going in it's going in this way, and so it's got characteristics. You know, a lot of them are dark. A lot of them are are ugly. A lot of them are you know things that that all of us are uncomfortable with awkward with. The person who is in Christ is going against that. He's distinct from that culture. We're in it. We're in it because we're part of this world, but we're to be distinct because we have the Spirit of God working in us and producing these beatitudes, these characteristics, these descriptions that make us totally different from what's going on in the world. And you know, if you pay close enough attention even with someone that may that may live a moral lifestyle, okay, someone may be living a moral good lifestyle. They're not they're not reflecting the culture necessarily, but the Spirit helps us discern whether that person has the grace of God causing that to affect in their lives, or is it just a natural tendency? If you spend any any time discerning at all, you can you can see that. 
You hear it in their conversation. Okay? So you can mimic these somewhat in a natural way. Somewhat. Now, personality influences a lot of that. You know, if you're a pugnacious personality, you're never going to be meek, are you? In and of your own strength. But when someone comes to Christ, even a pugnacious personality environment, this person can end up becoming a meek person. You know, a gentle person. Lloyd-Jones said, We have been told that we have to make the church attractive to the man outside, and the idea is to become as much like him as we can. There are certain popular padres, or fathers, he's talking about. This, again, I remind you, written in the 1950s. During the First World War, who mixed with their men. And he's saying at that time that these padres, these clergymen, these ministers mixed with them and that they converted with them they smoked cigarettes with them they they wanted to be one of them they wanted to put them at ease in order to encourage them they did this in an effort to encourage and fraternize with the men some people thought that as a result when the war was over these ex-servicemen would do what be crowding into the churches right yet it did not happen and it never ever has happened that way the glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different, distinct from the world, she invariably attracts it. So being counterculture means standing out. That's when God uses the countercultural Christian to draw attention to his grace in order to draw the person out of the culture to be countercultural. Make sense? If everybody just looks cultural, Everybody looks like the culture around them. Then, you know, people are running around. They're, they're swimming and drifting in despair because they know they're all in this thing together. And there's no hope. But when God raises up believers to be countercultural, sees these descriptions like the Beatitudes in believers, the grace of God blossoming and producing fruit in them, then the people in the culture... All of a sudden, they have something that gives hope that things can be different. I can be different. You know, if Paul can be different, maybe I could be different. Paul, what makes you different? Charles, what makes you different? Stu, what makes you different? That's, that's when the culture starts asking that, they do that because they've seen a distinct countercultural person, body of Christ, hopefully. That's what, that's what we want this church to be. Listen, I don't want to be the most popular church in town. I don't. I could care less. I want to be the most distinct church in town. I want to be the most countercultural church in town. Not for the purpose of being ornery or provocative toward the culture, but honoring Christ, being Christ-like. That we stand on the truth of God, and we do it not with bitterness or anger or, you know, any kind of bad attitude, but that we do it because we love Him and we rejoice in what He's called us to and what He's all the promises He's made to us. And we delight in the fact that He might use us to take hold of others out there in the culture who desperately need it. Right? That's what we're working toward. 
That's what I've been working toward. That's what I preach toward. That's what I'm working toward. And honestly, it gets challenging, doesn't it? Because we so easily fall back and we get pulled into the current and we're drifting along and we think, what's the point? Is it really making any difference? Well, it's not up for us to decide. It's up for us to be a reflection of these descriptions. You know, to be the poor in spirit. To be those who mourn. Okay? Now we're going to start talking a little bit about what that means. So Lloyd-Jones said also, the Christian and the non-Christian belong to two entirely different realms. Two entirely different realms. The modern church... And, I'm, and when I say modern church, I'm going back 40 or 50 or 60, even 70 years, has had liberalism, has driven the church to say, we need to cavort with the world in order that they might like us and come and be part of us, that we'll be popular. That's the crux of liberalism, okay? That's the crux of ignoring the Word of God and saying, let's be therapists. Let's be encouragers. Let's just be their friends. Let's just show them that we're not any better than they are. Well, that's anti-Christ. <laughs> why, if that's the answer, why didn't Jesus operate that way? Pray tell me, where did Jesus say, I'm going to be part of the culture so people will follow me? <laughs> that's, not the, that's not the method. Our job is to be countercultural as he was with love and compassion and joy in it and let him do the work that he wants to do in the lives of those around us. But we're here to be trophies of his grace in the midst of the muck and the mire. Okay, the poor in spirit. First, before we talk about what it is, I want you to notice where it is. Where is it? First, that's exactly right. That's an important observation. <clears throat> it's prominent on this list. And isn't that odd? It talks about poverty, it talks about poor in spirit, and yet that's the most prominent of the Beatitudes. <clears throat> Poor in spirit. It's prominent on this list. It's first. Why do you think that's true? It speaks of selfishness. Okay. Self-focus. Okay. It's foundational. Look at who Jesus spends all of his time with in every single one. This is the entry point. This is the entry portal. Nobody, nobody is a real believer without being poor in spirit. Nobody's got a prayer of being any of these other things unless he is first poor in spirit. That's the entry point. This is It's prominent. It's here for a reason. Matthew puts it down here first for a reason. Or Jesus preached it and said this one's first for a reason. These others won't come unless the first one is in place. 
Order is important in the Beatitudes. And it's going to continue to be important as we move through the rest of them. <clears throat> it's the fundamental characteristic of the Christian and the citizen of God's kingdom. All the other characteristics are, in a sense, the result of this one. Okay? All right, let's talk about Lily's question. What is it? devil was full of spirit? Pride. Pride? Okay. Alright. This is the opposite of that, so you're talking about humility. Okay. Good. Alright. Anybody else? Now, I read, I was reading the other day, and um, depending on who you read, there are some commentators who will take this thing into uh, a route of talking about poverty. And they're talking about the poor as in the people who don't have a lot of temporal things, okay? That's a misreading of this. That's a misunderstanding of the text. So if you've got somebody that's encouraging that we need to be focused on the poor, that's not what this is about. That's not saying that we shouldn't, that we shouldn't show kindness and, and help to the poor. That's not what I'm saying. But that's not what's going on here. When he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, he's not saying, blessed are the, those in poverty. That's not what he's saying. What's he saying? He's saying, this word is talking about an empty. emptying of the spirit Bill said the devil was prideful he was full in the spirit he was arrogant in the spirit this is the exact opposite the poor in spirit you got the perfect contrast there in Luke chapter 18 in the temple when you've got the Pharisee and you've got the tax gatherer okay you got the Pharisee standing right in the prominent place in the temple and he's lifting his voice high and he's thanking God that he's not like tax gatherers. Thank you that I'm a Pharisee and that I'm who I am and I was born a man in this culture of man dominance and all those kind of... That's the, that's the heart that's being described there in this guy. And then you've got the public and you've got this tax gatherer over here. He knows, he, he knows he's on everybody's hate list. He knows he's a crook. He knows that, that he's a blight on society and everybody agrees. And the scripture says he can't even lift up his eyes. You know, let alone address God in these big grandiose terms. He can't even lift up his eyes and he's even beating his chest by self-deprecation. That's the difference. Poor in spirit, Versus arrogant in spirit. And so the poor in spirit is the one who's emptied of self. He's emptied of self. And what's important to note. Lily, what you got in your cup? And water? Do you have water? Mm -hmm. On the ice. I 
Only ice? Okay. I drank all the water. What you got in yours, Steve? Coffee? Was. Yeah. See, if you say was, you got tea in yours. Let's, Brian's is easy to see. He's got tea in his cup. Okay? Now, if Brian wanted to drink some Kool-Aid, would you just pour it in there now? Would you pour it in there? No, sir. No. What would you do? You'd empty it. You know, to fill a vessel, the vessel first needs to become empty of what was in it, lest it become mixed and convoluted and useless. That's where that saying comes from, like he's full of himself. That's a, that's, that's a, yeah. What did Jesus say? You can be full of yourself or be empty of yourself. Jesus said, he who would come after me must first deny himself. Yeah. Isn't that the challenge we each have every day? Moment by moment, denying ourselves? When the guy cuts you off in traffic and you feel in that self rising up and saying, hey, you don't know who I am. How dare you? Isn't that what's going on? So in order to not let it get to you, you have to deny self. Okay? Deny self as being worthless or empty or you know, not worth the outrage. Who, who am I to be outraged because someone got in front of me or someone took the last parking space that I had my sights set on or, you know, you, can, you know, the everyday things that we deal with all the time and you know the emotions, the thoughts that run through your head when those things happen. And are we poor in spirit or are we full of self? Are we dying to self? You know, most of us, most of you, if you're like me, you're trying, you're hoping, you're trying to kill self all day long. I mean, honestly, it's a full-time job with me, right? I bury him, he comes right back up out of that grave and wants to be right in the middle of things. Human nature? Being poor in spirit. Sorry? I said it's human nature. It's human nature. And it's that struggle. tells us that's what we should do. That's right. It's the struggle between the new nature and that old flesh that keeps wrestling won't die. He's dead, but he don't know it yet. You know? That's what the, the man said. You know, the farmer, somebody asked him, they said, what happens, you know, when you cut a chicken's head off and it starts running around the barnyard? Is he dead or not? And the farmer said, that chicken's dead. He just don't know it yet. <laughs> right? And that's the way we are if we're in Christ. We're dead. We died to Him. We died with Him to our sin on the cross. But we're still living in this flesh, so we don't quite know it yet. So poor in spirit, being empty of self in order that we can be full of Christ, that we can be full of His Spirit. That the, grace, the grace of the Spirit of God may work in us and produce these beatitudes, these descriptions that are of Christ. Lloyd-Jones again says there's always two sides to the gospel. There's a pulling down and a raising up. Pull down, empty the Spirit in order that it can be raised up in Christ. Poor in Spirit really is just another way of saying what? humility 
And humility is one of those things, if you think you've got it, you probably don't have it yet. <laughs> right? Because you're full of yourself. <laughs> yeah, you can be full of yourself about not being full of yourself, right? You've met people like that. What? I take great pride that's, in humility. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. When we're studying in Sunday school right now, um, we just finished talking about David. Now we're talking about Solomon. The difference between having a whole heart for God and having a half a heart for God. Yeah. Or being conscientious of what you're doing for God. That was uh, Ananias and Sapphira's problem, wasn't it, in Acts 5? That they, they made a promise to sell a piece of land and give all the proceeds to, to the communal care that was going on with the new church. And what they did was they sold it for more than, than what they, uh, they got a good price on it, and they held some back. They didn't give it all, but they let everybody think they'd given it all. Seems like a small thing, doesn't it? But God took it very serious. That humble act wasn't a humble act at all. They were doing it for their own self-exaltation. They wanted everybody to think them prominent because other people were doing it, so they wanted to be on the, on the wagon. Blessed, happy, blessed are you who are poor in spirit. Or if you're an old Southern Baptist, you say, Blessed. Blessed is he. Blessed. Blessed. I just say blessed. Blessed are you when you're poor in spirit. What does that mean, blessed? I mean, and somebody are going to say, happy. Because technically it does mean happy. But there's better ways to think about it. I would say favored. Favored. Favored by whom? By God. Well, each one of the Beatitudes, Jesus tells us what the blessing is. Inherit the kingdom of God. You get to see God. Yeah. So he tells us what blessed yeah. really means. That's right. But if you listen to somebody who does a technical word study on this, um, this word, they may come back with happy, and when you get into the the mixtures that are our present culture and its connotations, that's not a good look for us believers, you know. Happy, 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 you know. Everybody wants to be happy, but I'd rather be joyful than happy because happy changes with circumstances, whereas joyful is there because it's a person, because a person working in us through his presence and that is Christ favored favored by God favored approved by God accepted by God um, this is a this is a blessing from the Father blessed are you of the Father when you are poor in spirit when you're humble when you are described with humility blessed are the poor in spirit why? For theirs is the kingdom of God. For theirs is the kingdom of God. 
According to the Wall Street Journal, there's a new fad among top-level business executives. It's called humility. Imagine that one. The article titled The Case for Humble Executives explores the business benefits of this once unpopular leadership virtue. The article notes, among executives, humility is the flavor du jour. Says Fred Hassan, a former CEO of Shearing Plow Corporation, and, uh, or is that Plow? Shearing Plow? And author of a book on leadership. Companies increasingly prize humble leaders because they listen well, admit mistakes, and share the limelight. Recruiters and coaches say the servant leadership model promotes collaboration. Says Dale Jones, chief executive of Recruiters Diversified Search Incorporated. Of course, there's one major problem with humble pie. You have to actually become humble. Apparently, fakes abound, like the former lieutenant of Krispy Kreme, as in donuts. According to one observer, he took the limelight. He didn't understand the humility part. After everyone discovered he was merely faking humility to get ahead in business, the Krispy Kreme board fired him. As one business expert noted, if you have to act humble, it won't work. You either are or you're not, right? And usually if you think you are, you probably aren't. God's concerned about poverty of spirit or ultimately a man's attitude toward himself. This is about, going back to Linda's point, full of himself or not, but what is your attitude toward himself? How do you feel about yourself? Now this is... This is not um, denigration of self. This is not looking at yourself and beating yourself up, okay? Taking away human dignity or spiritual dignity or any of those things. You know, do you have a puffed up, inflated opinion of yourself and your opinions? Most of us do, at least from time to time, right? It's about how I view myself. Do I view myself in need and dependent upon God for anything and everything? Or do I really see myself as being my own kingmaker? Somebody said, don't think less of yourself, but think of yourself less. <laughs> That's good. That's really good. <laughs> Write that down. <laughs> That's good. Good stuff. Leon Morris said this verse, this verse 3, is a radical reversal of the world's values. Isn't that right? I mean, what does the world tell us? Poor in spirit? That's not going to get you anywhere. You've got to have confidence. You've got to believe in yourself. You know? In fact, the world right now, the philosophy, the dominating philosophy of Western civilization right now is that you got everything in you that you need to be successful. If you don't believe it, just ask Tim Robbins. Just ask Joel Osteen. You got everything in you that you need to be successful. All you need to do is unleash it. You need to believe in yourself and you need to send me some money. Because <laughs> sending money is a demonstration of your faith. Right? Huh? Yeah. Poor in spirit means a complete absence of pride. Complete absence of pride and self-reliance and self 
assurance. It means having a consciousness that we are nothing in the presence of God. We can only produce nothing. Awareness and acknowledgement, we are utter nothingness, according to Lloyd-Jones. All right, let's think about some examples uh, quickly. Moses, Exodus chapter 3. Moses is an interesting study, isn't he? Moses had a problem. He was a melancholy spirit. He had an anger problem. You know, um, he didn't have a lot of self-confidence, did he? God says, hey, son, I want you to go to Pharaoh. Now, listen, Moses was trained in Pharaoh's schools. He had an education. He was raised in the palace. If anybody should have had the confidence to go back and have a conversation with Pharaoh, Moses should have been the guy, right? Verse 11, But Moses said to God, after God at the burning bush, God says, I want you to go. I want you to, I'm, going to, I'm going to let my people go, and I want you to be the guy in front. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Who am I? In Numbers, we're told that he's the meekest man that ever lived. You don't think of that when you see Charlton Heston on Ten Commandments, do you? Big manly beard and that rod. And, right? What about David? 1 Samuel 18, 18. I'll tell you what. Let me give you out some of these verses and it'll save us a little time. Bob, I want you to take 1 Samuel 18, 18. JC, I want you to take 2 Samuel 7, 18. Judy, you want to take one? If you'll take Luke 5, verse 8. Brian, take 1 Timothy 1, 15. Steve, Matthew 15, 27. Linda, Isaiah 57, 15. Paul, if you'll take Isaiah 6, verse 5. Phil, Isaiah 66, verse 2. Bill, Jeremiah 1, verse 6. Shirley, Jer what did I just say? Jeremiah 1, 6. Did I give that one to you? John 3, 30. Kenneth, you want to take Matthew 8, 8? Mary, if you'll take Proverbs 22, 4. Marcy, would you like to take one? Matthew 18, 4. And Jean, take Luke 18, 14. All right, everybody got them? Because if you didn't, I don't know who's got what. Okay, you ready? 1 Samuel 18, 18. But David said to Saul, Who am I, and what is my life or my father's family in Israel, that I should be the king's son-in-law? Yeah, so what Saul is giving him one of his daughters to marry, and David says, Who am I? Guy's been picked to be the king, right? He's, he's next in line. Humility. David's another one of those like Moses and like the rest of the characters we in Scripture. A lot of confusing parts, Right? One minute you think God says he's a man after my own heart. The next minute he's committing adultery and, and having a man killed. Okay, JC, 
2 Samuel 7, 18. Again, David. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all their enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares that you, that the Lord will be back to you by house. Okay. All right, Judy. Luke 5, 8. Okay, remember that? I mean, Peter's another one of those. Impetuous, compulsive, prone to anger, you know, but he had moments when encountering Christ that he was struck down and emptied. This is one of them in Luke 5, 8. The night he denied Christ is another one where he was devastated by the reality of what he had done that night. Probably a few hours before that when Jesus, you know, said, Who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Thou art Christ, the Son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, because uh, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, you know. Peter's all proud. The next moment, Jesus is talking about dying, and he's like, You're not going to die. And Jesus said, Get behind me, Satan. Down he goes again, you know. Mount of Transfiguration, same thing. On his face before Christ. So we see... We see that tug of war, self and spirit all the time in Peter's life. But uh, Peter was a man who could be humbled and was very often. Um, let's see, 1 Timothy 1.15. Here in the trustworthy saying, it deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Now, this is the Apostle Paul, right? I am the chief of sinners, he said. Uh, Philippians 3 he talks about everything that he's accomplished and he was a very accomplished man education you know he was somebody if Peter hadn't been called by the Lord uh, historians believe he would still have been somebody noteworthy in history Uh, that's how um, talented and equipped he was and yet he says it's all just rubbish all these things I've accomplished are rubbish in the light of knowing Christ Um, very humble Matthew fifteen twenty seven. She said, Yes, Lord, even yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Remember this woman came to Jesus, have a conversation, you know, give Jesus said, Look, you're you're you you're not a you're not even a Jew. You're you're of a Gentile. You know, you're you're a dog. Use that terminology and she said, But even the dogs eat the crumbs from the table. You know, it's audacious, audacious humility. That's a that's a real interesting contrast there. Uh, Isaiah fifty seven fifteen. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. God says, I'm, I'm high and lifted up, and my interaction is with those who are contrite, brokenhearted, poor in spirit. Isaiah 6, 5. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah 66, 2. 
fit the Lord, but to this man that I look, even from him that is pure and a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. Jeremiah 1 6. Uh, sovereign Lord, I said, I don't know how to speak. I'm only a child. <laughs> Jeremiah. Jeremiah cried all the time. I mean, he had a hard ministry. The people would not listen to him. He preached his guts out and they wouldn't listen. And he said, Lord, I want to quit. And yet, he had this cauldron of flame burning inside of him. And he says, I can't speak. I can't do it. He had, he was, he had a, he was a poor spirit. Poor in spirit. John 3.30. He must become greater. I must become less. John the Baptist, right? Matthew 8 8. Uh, and the centurion replies, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word, and my servant will be healed. Yeah, centurion, Roman soldier, commander over a bunch of troops. He's a hard man. He needs Jesus to come and look at his, uh, was his slave? Slave or son? Servant, yeah. Come come and look at my servant. He's sick. He's dying. You know, do something. Jesus said, well, where's your house? And he said, oh, you don't need to come to my house. I, I know what it means to have authority. All you need to do is speak and they'll come. But very humble, very humble spirit before Christ. So un-Roman-like. So un-soldier-like. Uh, Proverbs 2, 22, 4. By humility and the fear of the Lord. Riches and honor and life. Yeah. That's the business people have read that proverb. That's why they've got this new thing going on, don't you guess? Mm. By humility are riches and prosperity. Uh, Matthew eighteen four. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Wow. Luke eighteen fourteen. Okay, this is talking about the Pharisees, uh, the Pharisee and the tax collector. Yeah. This is tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Okay. We've established, right, what the poor in spirit is. We've established that poor in spirit is what we should be as Christ followers. Now, my next question for you is, how do you do it? How? This is what we should be. How does it happen? We just are. Fruit of the Spirit. Yeah, I mean, right. But there's something, there's something that, that's common in Scripture that you see with people that are poor in spirit. Something precedes their poverty of spirit. And where does that brokenness come from? There has to be a confrontation. Between
There will never be poverty of spirit. There will never be poorness in spirit until I'm confronted by the Holy God. Until I see what Isaiah saw. Woe is me. I'm undone. That's what he said. I'm undone. You know, when we compare ourselves to each other, hey, I can look pretty good next to Bob. <laughs> or maybe Bob looks pretty good beside me. Forgive <laughs> I'm just kidding, Bob. Lighten up. <laughs> you don't want to be illustration material, just tell me. But we compare ourselves to each other, one to another. We compare ourselves to the people in the world. We compare ourselves to... I don't think any of you compare yourselves to politicians, but we, we, might, we might look at those people and say, whoa, thank God I'm not a politician. <laughs> Who's that sound like? Sound like the Pharisee in the temple, didn't it? I mean, because it's easy for us to do. We do categorize people, but we, we slate them against each other. But all bets are off. If you want to be poor in spirit, the only person you can compare yourself to is God. The holiness of God. And when we do that, we always lose, right? We always lose. And the reality of our exposure is devastating. That's what Isaiah experienced. That's what the apostles up on the Mount of Transfiguration experienced. They couldn't look. That's what the apostle John experienced on the Isle of Patmos when he got the revelation from God. You can look over there, Revelation chapter 1. It's a great example of it. You got... You got um, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, who is the Almighty. I, John, your brother, partner, he's writing. He comes down to verse 17. He's, he's just seen. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe. He's seeing the resurrected, eternal, incorruptible, holy, undefiled God, Lord Jesus Christ. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. Don't get caught up in the description here because this is all human language could muster. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his, mouth was like, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. This, you know, it always amazes me when people talk about, you know, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God this. <laughs> sure you are. Sure you are. Yeah. After you get up off your face, if he lets you do that. We, we do not understand the magnitude of the holiness of God. We do not understand it. It's beyond our comprehension. But in order for us to be poor in spirit, we have to be confronted by the Holy God. We have to come to a realization that He's holy, I'm not. That it doesn't matter how many degrees there are down here on the south side of the, of the not pole, right? It doesn't matter. 
because it's so far removed from the got pole, the holy pole, that it, it doesn't matter. But I have, I have to own this gap between what is holy and what is not. Whoa, I'm undone. That's the only route to a poor in spirit. That's the only route to humility. Lloyd-Jones says the way to become poor in spirit is to look at God. Now, how do you do that? How do I look at God? Well, we have His revelation right here, don't we? We have to be in His Word. We have to be subjecting ourselves to His Word. So that's easy application, right? Some remain proud after they've been exposed to it. Pharaoh remained proud. Jezebel remained proud. And it was to their demise that Isaiah's encounter is one that we could all emulate. Okay, wrapping up. Those who mourn. What does it mean to mourn? It's one of those words we're not very acquainted with, right? It, Did you associate that word mostly when you lose a, a beloved? Yeah, that's person. right. Sorrow, uh, lament, um, to be contrite, to grieve. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You know, mourn, um, you know, Paul contrasts arrogance and mourning with the Corinthians in chapter 5. You know, when he, he wrote to them and they had all this immorality that they allowed in the church. They had this guy that was living living in sin with his stepmother, you know, and, and Paul wrote to them and he said, you know, <laughs> you, the fact that you're tolerating this speaks to your arrogance, your spiritual arrogance when you should be mourning. You should be mourning. You should be mournful about what's going on. Mournful about what you've tolerated. Mournful about sin in general. Mournful for this guy who's in bondage to sin, who claims to be a believer, and you're condoning what he's doing and letting him walk with it. Lots of things in that whole situation to mourn, to be contrite, to grieve over. Blessed are those who grieve, who mourn, it, this flows easily and properly out of being poor in spirit. Until you're broken, until you're poor in spirit, you can't really mourn over sin, can you? You can't mourn over the brokenness that sin has caused in this world. Jesus, we know, was characterized as a man of sorrows. You know, a lot of people kind of portray Jesus differently than what Scripture does. Scripture doesn't doesn't portray him as a man of hilarity, of laughter and yucking it up all the time. I, I'm not saying he didn't laugh, he didn't uh, enjoy fellowship with friends. I, I'm sure he did, but you know, the things we read about him, we, we see he was a man of sorrows. We see on at least a couple of occasions where he wept openly. He wept at Lazarus' tomb, which is odd because he was getting ready to raise Lazarus from the dead. So why was he weeping? 
One preacher I heard said he was weeping for Lazarus who he was getting ready to call back from glory. He's going to have to give up glory to come back to this earth. I don't think that was it. I think he was weeping over, over the devastating effects of sin and the brokenness in this world. The heartache, the disease, the death, the separation, the unbelief. All those things were on parade there at Lazarus' tomb. And he was weeping. He was mournful and weeping over that condition. It says he also weeped over Jerusalem when he came in, making his final, making his final progression into the city. He wept over the city because of its unbelief, because of its hardness uh, of sin. We are favored, blessed, because we see through a serious lens the state of a fallen creation. That's the calling of the Christ follower. It's to see the world differently than the world sees itself. You know, not yucking it up because some comedian is, is taking lightly Christian things around Easter or Christmas. You know, those things should bother us. They should cause us to mourn. Not in anger toward that person because he's a lost man, but mourning for the condition of the depraved soul that is mocking and ridiculing God. We clearly see the grief imposed upon the heart of God because of our rebellion. Those who mourn are not joking and snickering about sin, winking, slapping backs. Those that mourn see the raw truth of sin in themselves and in all creation. Those that mourn see the devastating effects of sin. Those who mourn are people who are prone to repentance. They're prone to understand the, the impact and the cost of sin. And what it's cost God to forgive it. So such repentance leads the sinner to Christ's comfort. Right? Blessed are you when you mourn because why? Because you are comforted by Christ. So... When you mourn, when you grieve over sin, it's the comfort of Christ that renews the spirit, that brings healing, that brings strength to persevere, that tells us the better day is coming, that the kingdom is already but not yet. And so we are comforted in Him. Blessed are you when you mourn because of the comfort of Christ that is yours in Him. This is why we can be satisfied and content even in our mourning. It brings us into the arena of Christ's comforting forgiveness. Okay. Questions? Comments? Ah, we did pretty